I would love to get my arm all tatted up, my chest and back too for that matter, maybe of some biblical scene from Revelation when Christ throws down the devil into the fiery pit once and for all. I wonder what you Christians think of when you hear me say that. Or what would you think of if you hear another person say, Christians should never get tattoos. Or if you hear someone just say, a Christian, I just love the taste of a cold beer. Or Christians should never drink alcohol. Or you check out the new heist movie. I mean, it's rated R, has some junk in it, but it is good. Or Christians should never watch R-rated movies. Or, I'm voting for Trump this time. Or, how can you be a Christian and vote for Trump? I wonder how you as a Christian respond when your fellow Christians say such things. And I'm guessing, maybe, that some of you might have some maybe visceral reactions to some of those statements that I just made. Maybe it recalls certain conversations that you've had with other Christians about similar issues where you just cannot believe a Christian would even think or dare to do such a thing. But it brings up a question. How is it that we navigate church relationships, Christian relationships, when there are so many opinions about how to best live out the Christian life? This is what our passage today from Romans chapter 14 begins addressing. And while opinions and positions on things that are not specifically addressed in Scripture or things that are not clearly implied from biblical passages are still important, right? We, we want to think about these things. All of the things I mentioned before, we want to think carefully about those things. What's interesting is in our passage today, he, Paul says, the passage says that what is more important is our hearts toward our fellow believers, our fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Now, if what unites the church or divides the church are mere matters of opinion, you can imagine the church in her testimony, the testimony of the love of God in Jesus Christ is very much in danger. And with sin already causing so many challenges in the church, why let opinions, mere opinions, bring division in the body of Christ? This threat of division is definitely not new. In fact, our passage this morning, uh, we see that the Roman church in the first century was threatened with the same. From our passage, we are encouraged to do what glorifies our one Lord, who is building his one kingdom, building up his one people in his one spirit. And what are they told to do amid so many differing opinions? It's simple. He just says, accept one another in brotherly love. Accept one another in brotherly love. That's the main point of the passage today. Accept one another in brotherly love when it comes to differing opinions. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, and we're looking at verses 1 to 12. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. And the themes that are brought up here in Romans chapter 14, they actually go all the way, basically through the middle of chapter 15. So we have today's sermon, and then we actually have the next two sermons. So we're in Romans for three sermons in a row here. Um, that all address very similar things. Today I'm going to sort of set the scene. And uh, in terms of the explanation, you know, the explanation will be here. But when it comes to the application, I won't go too far in depth because I know what's coming up in future weeks, in the next two weeks. So hopefully next week we'll have more practical application. This week we have more of the application of think like this application. And I pray that's helpful for you guys. So in the book of Romans, uh, this here is a letter written by Paul the Apostle who was used of God to lay the foundation of the church. Uh, he was a Jew, thoroughly involved in Judaism. He's a teacher of uh, the Old Testament. And then he came to see Jesus Christ. He, he's converted. He becomes a Christian. He sees that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. And so he repents of his sin and believes on Jesus Christ. Once he opposed Christ and Christians, and now he follows Christ in Christ and he seeks to see other Christians worship God. 
gather in churches, give all the glory to God. And, and that's very much how God uses him here as an apostle of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's going around planting churches, preaching the gospel. He's also here in this book and in many other por- uh, portions of scripture, writing letters to real people, encouraging them in the faith. So in terms of Romans, since we haven't been here in a while, let me just take a moment to talk about structure. It's broken up into two different sections, Romans 1 to 11. Taking note, if, if you're taking notes, I think this would be helpful. Romans 1 to 11 and then 12 to 16. So you got section number 1, Romans 1 to 11, and then chapters 12 to 16. 1 to 11 address the issue of what is the gospel. And then 12 to 16 addresses implications for Christian life, Christian living, that flow from the gospel. So in 1 to 11... Paul explains what the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ is. Gospel just means good news. And he makes clear that the gospel is, in fact, good news because of the very bad news that all men, all men, all women have rebelled against their one creator. They have, in fact, rebelled against him, rejecting his loving rule and his care over humanity, over everybody. And basically, this is all of us here, as Romans teaches, We think we are better gods over ourselves. We'd rather say, forget you, God. I'm going to rule my own life and determine what is good, right, or wrong for myself. And this rejection of God, the creator, is sin. The Bible says very clearly that the punishment for this treason against the one king is judgment in hell, the Bible says. But, but friends, the, the good news after that very bad news is that that is exactly why God sent His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, to live amongst us. He didn't want to see His people, His created people, judged in their sin. Instead, He wanted His created people to be in a relationship with Him again. And like any good parent would do, He sought after His own rebellious people. He sends His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Christ took on flesh lived the perfect life that we should have, and he died the death that we, in fact, deserved. And so on the cross, God's wrath was poured out, not on those who deserve judgment, but on his son. All so his people would be free, that is, those who repent and believe. All so that people would be forgiven of their sin, so that our debt to God would be wiped away, so that the alienated would be restored to God and the guilty declared righteous. The runaways adopted back into his family. In Christ, those who deserve eternal death receive eternal life, all by the free grace and mercy of God given in Jesus Christ. I mean, God loves sinners so much that he sends his son to save them. And friends, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian today, you too can know this salvation of God by the grace and mercy given us in Jesus Christ if you turn from your sins and believe on him. Be restored to your maker, your very own creator. And God says you will know this salvation. Friends, if you have any questions about this gospel or aspects of it, if you want to talk to me about that, I'll be standing right there at the back of the doors along with Jason, our associate pastor, we'd be happy to talk to you about any portion of that, whether you believe these things or not. Happy to talk about it. Love talking about it. In terms of section number two, in Romans chapters 12 to 16, right? he now addresses implications of the gospel. Basically, the question is, how then shall Christians live? With a huge emphasis on love. So if you look there in Romans chapter 12. You'll see there that love is a huge theme that runs all throughout the section there. You see there in 12 verse 9, it says there, let love be genuine. And then you look there in 13, 8, it says, oh, no one, anything except to love one another. He goes on to say that love is a fulfillment of the law. And then in 14 and 15, which is where we are now, Paul takes the opportunity to teach on how to love given a particular situation going on in the church of Rome. A difficulty that could only be remedied by love. We too experience these difficulties, and I hope this will become clear. Let's go ahead and look there at Romans chapter 14. I'll go ahead and read verses 1 to 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I mentioned that there was a difficulty going on in the church of Rome. Let's look here. Let's just jump into it. Point number one, let's address the difficulty of differences, the difficulty of differences, or just think of it like the difficulty of opinions. Most churches experience the difficulty of differences, us included. We as members of First Baptist Church, you know, we all come from different backgrounds. We have different kinds of baggage. We are diverse in our temptations and sins, and we differ in opinion about a whole lot of things. But while we can let those differences divide us, it's clear from the Bible that God desires unity in the body of Christ. After all, God is building a people who unite around the most important thing, that is the gospel. And he wants his people to unite around the mission of taking this gospel to the ends of the earth. And God's saved people are unified, united in the gospel despite our sin. And despite our differences, our unity testifies to God's great love for us and his goodness, his kindness in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has changed us. He has saved us. And he is building his united and loving people in a very divided and sinful age. I mean, all the things that could stop us from being united, whether to us and God or us to one another, he takes care of. Sin. He takes care of that in Jesus Christ, right? We see that Genesis 3, we see sin enters into the world. Well, God takes care of that in Jesus. You see there in the Tower of Babel, right? What separates the people there? Well, you see it's pride and then it's different languages. Well, God takes care of that in Jesus as Jesus pours out his spirit and gives people the ability to speak different languages, uniting his people into one. Even as we sin against each other, right? We, we know that we have received the forgiveness of God, and so we are to forgive one another. He takes care of that in Jesus. He teaches us how to forgive. And even in our differences of opinion, God wants us to be taken care of. He wants us to be united. How is, how is it that he takes care of that? Well, he gives us the, the heavenly quality, the characteristic of Christ-like love. This is why Christian love is so important in Romans 12 to 16. You have this difficulty of differences, the potential of a fractured church over mere opinion. And so in our passage, it's clear God wants his people to be quick to cover over potential divisions with Christ-like love. The Roman church was experiencing the difficulty of differences and in some ways the clashing of cultures. Now we're going to dive into a little bit of a history lesson uh, but it's, it's a clashing of cultures going on there in the Roman church. And I'll set the scene here. They, there were likely, at the founding of the Roman church, a lot of Jews, right? Jews who become Christians. Uh, for those Jews, right, we have, to, we have to step into sort of their shoes for a moment and realize that their cultural roots, their cultural roots went all the way back to Abraham. We're talking about thousands of years here, right? You've got to think all the way back to the time of Genesis and Exodus, thousands of years. And because of their cultural practices, these first century Jewish people were still very much distinct from the nations around them, all by God's design, all according to God's law in the Old Testament, in order that they would be distinct 
amongst a sinful people. The, the, the pagan nations around them, if you think about the Old Testament that way. Right, so God had given them moral laws, like think of the Ten Commandments. He had given them civil laws, like how to organize themselves as a society. He had given them ceremonial laws, some of them even concerned like what types of food to eat. Right? And all of these things were designed so that the people of God would be separate from the nations around them. I mean, imagine those Jews, right? Thousands of years of cultural history, law upon law upon law upon law, becoming Christians. And then learning from Paul, a Jewish Christian, that all of the Old Testament, even its laws, pointed to Jesus and is fulfilled in Christ. That, that would be a game changer right there. In becoming a Christian and following Jesus, right, their inherited culture, thousands of years, their inherited culture is confronted all of a sudden in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see the implication for those Jews now following Jesus, Jewish Christians, right? If our laws have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ, then we are no longer bound to certain aspects of the Old Testament law, like Israel's civil codes or ceremonial law, including what to eat, right? Clean foods versus unclean foods. With Christ, the fulfillment of the law for his people, right? They would be thinking, we are free to live in the glorious freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. And so they learn to live in this freedom given, according to Romans, some of their legalistic pasts that they could be saved by works. But as we mentioned in the past, right, remember what happens there, history, okay? Uh, the founding of the church, the vast majority of them were Jewish Christians. But then the emperor of Rome around uh, AD 40 expels all of the Jews out of Rome. So they got to leave the city. Uh, but, of course, God is still saving sinners, so who is he going to save? Well, he saves his elect among the Gentiles, and then all of a sudden, the church is very much Gentile. There are no Jews. And you think of the Gentiles, right, in comparison to the Jews, well, they were a loose people. They followed whatever their hearts desired, right? This God, that God, they're known for sexual immorality, at least many of them, a certain faction uh, group there in the first century. They were known for sort of living it up in some ways. They didn't care what God said was sin. Now imagine them becoming Christian. All of a sudden, they, the loose ones, need to learn to live underneath God's good rule, commands, all that display God's glory, His holiness, His righteousness. So they have to learn to give up sexual immorality and this and that and drunkenness, etc., etc. Now things get tricky here when those two groups converge Emperor eventually, over, over a decade, lets the Jews back into town. So you have these stiff-necked, buttoned-up Jews with thousands of rules, at least cultural history, coming to worship with the, the, the supposedly loose, maybe even barbaric Gentiles. Now all of a sudden you have the clash of cultures. I imagine the Jewish Christians might have judged their Gentile brothers and sisters to be a bit barbaric. And then the Gentiles might think like, man, why you have your tunic in such a bunch? Why don't you just loosen up a little bit? And you can see the two sides just getting clearer and clearer. Them over there, very stiff-necked, saying, why don't you worship God this way? And them over here saying, like, what's your problem? I'm sure maybe some of you guys even have people in mind across the pew that might be like this. I don't know. We see the difficulty of opinions. And, and while we are 2,000 years away from the time of the writing of Romans, the same things happen here in this church or can happen here in this church. We got folks from conservative backgrounds who then became Christians and then they need to check their conservatism, whether that be individual or national conservatism, they need to check their conservatism against the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does God really say in the Bible about some of the things that I believe? And then things get evaluated, and naturally this process, is, is, this, this process of learning to live in the freedom of Christ is not always easy. And certainly understanding is not always immediate. And then you got folks who come from the more liberal backgrounds who then become Christian. I mean, they too got to check their free and unbound lifestyle against the gospel and what Christ commands. And this too, for them, is not easy. It's learning to live a life that pleases God, following His commands. It's not always easy, nor is understanding always immediate. And so it's into the situation that Paul says, you guys got to love each other, accept one another. 
For the Roman church, let's just talk briefly about the issues here. What are, what are the issues here? Uh, for the Roman church, the issue centered around how to think about these Old Testament commands, how to think about some of these Old Testament commands. You look there. The first issue was about Old Testament food laws. Look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, we're not talking just about you know, being a vegetarian or a vegan or something like that. It seems that some of the Jewish Christians were convinced that the best way to honor God was to continue following their cultural Jewish laws. You know, think about kosher meat. Right, which called for the blood of an animal to be properly drained before eating it. If not, then the animal would be unclean. Right, so you got those Jewish Christians who come to faith, and they're thinking like, okay, well, I see here that all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus, but it is best, still best, to eat only vegetables. And in that situation, you can imagine, right, if I'm a Gentile and I'm eating whatever I want to, I invite you over to my house as a Christian, a fellow brother in Christ, you want to follow the Jewish kosher laws, but I, what, what do I know about that, right? You can imagine how you would only eat vegetables in my house. Think of like um, Daniel, for example, in the Old Testament. They lived underneath a, a different ruler, and so they refrained from eating certain things like meat. Instead, they only ate vegetables. So, so this is a, an issue here, right? Paul says that the Jewish Christians who took this position were weaker in faith. They were the ones who were weaker in faith. And then the others who believed that everything was good to eat, right? the Gentile Christians, they were the stronger in faith. Another issue in verse 5, right, had to do with days, days. You look at that verse 5, esteeming one day better than another. Maybe observing like certain Jewish feast days. Um, and then it had to do with the Sabbath. Right, observing, how, how exactly do we observe the Sabbath even though Christians gathered on Sunday, the Lord's Day? Again, it is the Jews who are the weaker in faith and the Gentiles who are the stronger in faith. Now, for a moment here, let's, what does this mean, like, to be weaker in faith? What does this mean? I don't think it means that they are weaker in faith in general. I think it refers to them being weaker in a particular point in living out their faith. Right, so how do I live out my faith in light of God's truth in this one particular area? And they don't have it, you know, all quite... Um, they don't have all of the knowledge revealed in Scripture. It's important to note that in the New Testament, the New Testament teaching is actually in line with the stronger Christians. That's important to know here. God says, Jesus, as Jesus um, taught in the book of Acts, all foods are good to eat. All foods are good to eat. And then regarding days, even though God commanded his Old Testament people to rest on Saturday, that is the seventh day, Christians can consider the seventh day like any other day. And that's shown by the fact that God's people gather to worship on the Lord's Day, that is Sunday, the Resurrection Day. And that's been the practice since Christians, since the New Testament. What is instructive is that Paul encourages both sides, whether weak or strong, to welcome one another for unity. Now, let's be clear. These issues of eating and days, they did not, I repeat, they did not have to do with issues related to salvation or the truth of the gospel. They were not salvific issues. These are opinions. So these Christians were not saying, in order to be a Christian, you need to be a vegetarian, right? We know what Paul would think about any salvation by works, right? If some of you guys are studying the book of Galatians, we, you know exactly how Paul responds if one adds or messes with the truth of the gospel. He says, if you say that, that works should be added to faith and therefore you are saved, or that you are saved by works straight out. He says, let him be accursed. And we already saw that in the book of Romans too, if you've been walking through the book of Romans with us. So again, here, Romans chapter 14, we're talking about opinions. Again, they most likely concluded something like, as a Christian, I best honor God by doing this or that, by esteeming this thing or that thing. Or they might think, you know, holiness, for example, is best expressed by doing this or that thing, by refraining from this or that thing. And again, you know, friends, we have these same issues. We got issues of days, right, today, 21st century, just like they did. Some of you guys may have grown up in families that didn't really celebrate Christmas. You might have wondered, you know, should we or should we not celebrate Christmas? And if we do, how do we do it? Some of you guys have had to think about, as a Christian, do you participate in the Mexican holiday of the Day of the Dead? And if so, how do you participate 
in the holiday of the Day of the Dead. Some Asian Christians here have to think about whether or not they will go with their families on their special days to honor their ancestors. And they need to think all the more important, uh, think about it all the more carefully if any aspect of ancestor worship is involved. Right? We all think about the, the, this issue of days. We also think about the issue of w- what to eat, right? More particularly, right now, what to drink. Are Christians supposed to abstain from alcohol entirely? Can we still honor God and have a cerveza every once in a while. And friends, let me, again, I'm talking about opinion. We're not talking about sin. We know it's very clear that we are not to be drunk. Let's be very clear. We are not to get drunk. The reason why is because if you're intoxicated with alcohol, you don't think straight. You don't think to the glory of God. You don't act to the glory of God. And some of us know what that's like very clearly because that was our background, right? So, which is why Paul in Ephesians tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how we act and think and love to the glory of God. So, let's be clear. We are not to be drunk. There are a whole host of other issues, right? Can Christians love Jesus and, like I mentioned before, get tattoos? Can Christians love Jesus and drive Ferraris? I don't know anybody thinking about buying a Ferrari here, by the way. Can Christians still love Jesus and live in a mansion? What shows should Christians watch? Can we still honor Jesus and live this way? Can we still love Jesus and send our children to public school or private school? Or is the only way to love Jesus through uh, homeschool and on and on? There's a billion questions that we could ask. Now, even though the Bible does not address these questions in specific, the answers are still important for us as individual Christians. So I hope that you guys are able to talk about these things carefully. But what is more important, again, on these issues of opinion is that we love our fellow brothers and sisters regardless of their opinions, regardless of what they think on indifferent matters. That's a term that I want you guys to know, indifferent matters or matters indifferent. These are matters where God doesn't specifically speak on. They're also matters where clear implications from biblical passages can't exactly be drawn. These things are the unclear things. So it is imperative that we love one another despite our differences of opinion. I mean, if the church divided over mere opinion, what a bad testimony the church would be. There are plenty of good reasons why we could divide. Heresy, for example. Gospel truth being twisted. When the gospel is not being preached. When a church does nothing about sin and doesn't seem to care about the holiness of God at all, right? Those are good reasons to divide over. Those are clear reasons that God has spoken on. But these are matters of indifference. When it comes to indifferent matters, God calls his people to marshal Christ-like love so that the church would be united. And the people needed it, didn't they? The Gentiles here, just look at what they were doing to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 3, look at verse 3. Those who eat everything were despising the one who abstains. Right? You imagine they come to to a meal and then their guests are abstaining and they're like, dude, what's your problem? Even though uh, they are right theologically, the strong Christians, in, in, in other words, the ones who might have more knowledge of the subject, even though they are right theologically that everything is okay to eat, right? they seem to be given to the temptation to look down on others for being so stiff. And then you've got the Jews in verse 3 as well. right? They were apparently judging their Gentile brothers who didn't do what they did. Verse 3, let no one or let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And with all this despising going on, with all this judging going on, you can see Christian unity was being threatened. So Paul tells them, just quit it. Instead, welcome one another, receive one another, accept one another despite your differences. And for the rest of our time here, we're going to talk about why. Okay, so we we looked at point number one, the difficulty of differences. We saw the setting and then we saw the command there. It's very clear. Verse number one of 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. He calls them here to welcome them. So point number three, we're going to talk about why. Why are we commanded to welcome one another? First reason there is found in verse three. I'll go ahead and read one to three. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, here we go. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. 
And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? Why? It's for God has welcomed him. God has already welcomed him. You can just imagine hearing all the quarreling over opinions out of the desires to be right theologically, biblically, and all the judgmental comments about why they are not doing certain things. All of them are stopped. As Paul says, stop fighting. God has welcomed them. I remember in PE in junior high, uh, me and my friend were sort of going back at it. We were sort of harping on one another, saying all these bad things about each other. Um, even though we were friends. And then another, our third friend just turned around and said, look, if you don't have anything good to say, then don't say anything at all. And, and what did it do? Both of us just shut up because we understood the point. We understood like, hey, you know what? Maybe we should stop bickering and think about all the good things that we could say towards one another. It's kind of what's going on here. Except he's not pointed, you know, it's not the third party human being that's saying other, telling other people what to do. It's God. God himself has already welcomed them. It's so instructive here for Paul to ground. When I say ground, I mean give reasons for. It's so instructive for Paul to ground why we need to welcome other Christians. Because it reminds us, as I often say, that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ the way that God wants them loved. We are to love our brothers and sisters the way that God wants them to be loved, right? How does God love? God does not quarrel with his children over opinions. God does not despise the less knowledgeable, tormenting the weak. I mean, can you imagine that? Those whom he foreknows, he predestines to be his children, Romans chapter 8. And those whom he predestines, he also calls. And those whom he calls, he also justifies. But when you turn up to my throne room, I'm going to berate you. Prepare to be despised and picked at for all of your opinions that are not informed by perfect knowledge of God. Of course he doesn't do these things. It's ridiculous. So you see, our welcoming of others is to be reflective of the fact that God himself has already welcomed them in the shedding of his very own son's blood. Just as God seeks the safety and security of his people in Jesus so the strong are to seek the same for the weak. I love the analogy of the church as a hospital. I'm sure you've heard this before, right? The church as a spiritual hospital where we, right? Where we are to seek the healing, the peace, and the upbuilding of all of God's people so that they would be healthy Christians all through Jesus Christ and his cross work. That is what God is about. So that's what we should be about. Look there in verse 19 of uh, chapter 14. He says there, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Right? As God is in the business of saving the sick, God has given his church the responsibility of ministering to other people. And when the spiritually sick come in, right, spiritual triage needs to happen. You guys understand the concept of spiritual triage or triage in the hospital? You know, let's say, God forbid, you know, a bunch of crashes happen over here and loads of people need to go into the hospital, right? Triage needs to happen. You need to figure out who needs our attention the most and what's the particular issue uh, for the person coming in through our doors, right, into the emergency room. You've got to figure out what is most important. What should I give my time to and my effort to stabilize this person and then deal with other things later on? So, friends, imagine loving God's people the way that he wants them loved, performing spiritual triage in a loving manner. Think of the strong Christian ministering to the weak in ways that please God. Okay, so if you find yourself to be judgmental about other people who are like trying to figure out how to live the Christian life, like maybe I shouldn't drink, and that's really genuinely what they think. If you find yourself to be judgmental, you are the strong. Of course, you've got your issues too, but you are the strong here. How, how, here Paul calls us to marshal Christ-like love so that the church is, is, is unified, right? And that requires us to think about them and their situation. Just imagine, right? Just remember, sometimes the weak are former legalists. Right? They, they think that salvation is achieved by our own work. Legalists, according to the book of Romans, are slaves to the law, even though, right, they, even though the law does not save, yet they still 
live according to it as if it does. But in reality, the law only condemns, right? This is why Paul says the law is a wicked taskmaster, right? Legalists often feel this huge burden of, am I doing it right or wrong? Because if not, then I go to hell. They try and achieve salvation. Now, when God saves a legalist, when God shows them the beauties of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, when God gives them faith in Christ, they begin to taste freedom in Jesus. Freedom in the one who fulfills the law on their behalf. Freedom from, in the one who bore their penalty for being a lawbreaker. So you know what the former legalist turned Christian needs as that individual comes to the doors of the emergency department? She needs to be drawn deeper and deeper into the freedom that is in Christ, doesn't she? Even if by baby steps, according to all the different issues going on in that person's heart, according to all the emotional baggage that they have, the mental issues and spiritual state of that individual, I mean, in their weakness, might they think that they best honor God by doing some of those things that they once thought saved them, but they know no longer do? like abstaining from this or that or not drinking this or that or by observing this day and that day? Sure, maybe. But regardless, they don't need to be despised for their weakness. What they need is for the strong, right, to commit themselves to helping them know the peace of Jesus Christ. They need to behold over and over again Jesus Christ's righteousness. They need to know His freedom in being justified that is declared righteous once and for all. The strong then are called to administer Christ-like love to their weaker siblings, seeking their safety and security in Jesus Christ without any aim to prove themselves right by winning some theological argument. Now, think on the other side, how do the weak love the strong as they perform spiritual triage, right? I mean, right, the, the strong, they need love too. They need Jesus Christ too, not to be judged. I mean, how inappropriate would it be? Imagine this, put yourself inside of the hospital. How inappropriate would it be for a guy to roll in on a gurney with his own life-threatening issues and while writhing in pain, you would say, oh, I'm going to stop this gurney. Hold on one second. Did you know that those tattoos, they might not be so appropriate? And they can actually, and you know, with, with needles, if they're dirty, they can lead to life-threatening illnesses. It can make your condition all the worse. And there, all, that, all the while, that guy's writhing in pain because he has his own issues. To the weak, right, to the judgmental, Paul reminds us that even in matters indifferent, especially in matters indifferent, God is their final judge, not you. Now, I know some of the weak here, right? If you, if you are the weak, right, maybe you know that you have a list of laws that you need to follow that are in the Bible that define how you best follow God and how other people should, right? Sometimes you even look over there and you think, oh, but I'm so concerned about my brother. I'm concerned about the way he's going and his soul might be in danger if he continues to get tattoos. But, but what does Paul say there in verse 4? At the end there, he says, the Lord is able to make him stand. God will preserve him. It's kind of a rebuke to the weak. He just says, chill out. God has it. God, the one who has foreknown, predestined, called, saved, justified, will glorify. God has him. The Lord is able to make him stand there in verse 4. He says, so welcome him. Stop judging him on issues of Christian freedom. Those are his freedoms purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, again, he is not talking about sin issues. I've got to underscore this over and over again. I can imagine someone who might want to live in sin, right? If you here want to live in sin, you're like, yes, I can do whatever I want, which includes sin. That's not the case. I, I can imagine someone might read verse 5. Go ahead and look there and be so glad he says this. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, right? And then they might go on to use the rest of our passage and say, see, you should never judge me for anything. Only God can judge me now famous line from Tupac. That would be absolutely wrong. It's very clear, according to the Bible, that Christians are to render judgment. It is very clear that Christians are to render judgment. That is, we are to make assessments about our brothers and sisters uh, in an effort to see them following Jesus rightly. So when we are in sin, if I'm ever in sin, you should be rebuking me. That's very clear. 
These issues, again, are not sin issues. We're talking about matters of personal opinion concerning how one feels they should honor God. That's why he's saying, look, we can have different opinions. You should just be decided in your own mind. Like, don't let somebody else tell you what your conscience tells you because that, that wouldn't be good. And we're going to look more about that uh, next week. This is why Paul can remind us there in verse 21, so then each of us will give an account to God. But going back to the idea of, his, uh, of the church as a spiritual hospital, right? we are to welcome all that God drops at our doorsteps, all, that those are, all those whom God is calling to himself, loving them as God wants them loved, seeing them safe and secure in the love of Jesus Christ. That is the first reason, welcome them as God himself has welcomed them. The second reason why we are to welcome others in love is because they are, they are our spiritual family. They are now our spiritual family, right? Number two just follows logically on number one. If God has welcomed them, right, he has made them children of God. Number two, we are to accept them as our very own family. This is alluded to in verse 10. You look there, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? And then you can look over at verse 15. I'll go ahead and read that. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. It's a rebuke, right? He's, he's talking about love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He's talking about brotherly love, right? Brotherly love seeks the peace and the upbuilding of the individual, right? Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. If there is despising and judging going on, friends, that's evidence that you see your brothers and sisters more as adversaries than family members. It is incredibly unloving for the strong to despise the weak or to make fun of the weak. In that situation, the stronger and the more confident, right, sits down and calls the weaker to account for his weaknesses. You think we only need to eat vegetables? That's ridiculous. Show me where. Chapter and verse, show me where. And then I'm going to go, go ahead and show you why we can eat everything. And I'm going to go ahead and show you why Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath day. The rest is in him. Like, you're ridiculous. Like, sometimes we do this in our hearts, don't we? It's incredibly unloving for the strong to despise the weaker. If that's the tone of the conversation, it would seem that the strong, once again, only wants to wield the truth in the way that proves himself right. There is no upbuilding in mind. Again, we've got to remember that the weak oftentimes already have very sensitive consciences. They're probably already worried about getting things right or wrong. They might tend towards wondering if they're going to lose their salvation, which according to the Bible we know is not possible for the Christian. Again, oftentimes the weak need encouragement in what they are doing right, don't they? I mean, no doubt they need the truth, right? right? Like we all need the truth. I think this is one reason why Paul actually teaches about Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He teaches it more than once. I think that's in part to instruct the weak, isn't it? What they need are brothers and sisters that will walk with them for years. What they need is a brotherhood, a sisterhood in the church that cares, that instructs in truth and love and seeks to strengthen others. As we all learn to live our lives to the honor of God, why would we, if you consider yourself strong and knowledgeable, why would you despise your brothers and sisters, even if they are a little stiffer? I mean, who ridicules his siblings we're trying to love their father as best they know how. Who ridicules their siblings for trying to love their father as best they know how? I mean, think of this scenario where my youngest child decides with all of his heart to make me hash browns and eggs every single morning, right? I love hash browns and eggs. There is no law in my house that says hash browns and eggs need to be on the counter every single day. The child just decides to do it because he loves his father. And he does so with great gusto. Now, might he be too zealous in making sure it happens every day? Sure. Might he be too zealous in making sure his siblings help every single day? Sure. But regardless, what would we think of the strong sibling who says, Dude, would you quit it? You don't have to make them every day. Dad never said. What does he say? Show me. Wouldn't we all think that that sibling has clearly missed the point? The zeal and desire of that youngest child that seeks to honor God, the father, should be praised. It should be cultivated. 
even learned from, not dismissed, never despised or made fun of. Does it need to be shaped? Yes. But sanctification is a lifelong process, and thank God that we as a church can do this together. Why ridicule your siblings for trying to love the Father the best they know how? Now, on the flip side, what kind of sibling purposefully makes his siblings feel bad for not conforming their love to the Father to be like his own? Why does everybody need to love the same way in matters of opinion? To turn up and say, you obvious must, obviously must not love dad since you are not making hash browns and eggs for him every morning. Friends, you see that that's stripping freedom away from the Christian freedom and rest that God intends his people to have. It works both ways from the weak and the strong. We are to welcome others even if there are differing opinions on matters indifferent. Knowing our brothers and sisters, are, they're just trying to honor God their Father in heaven as best they know how. That's why that's the whole section there in verses 5 to 9. Look there in verse 6. The one who observes the day, he observed it for what purpose, right? It is in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, he eats in honor of the Lord. The one who abstains does so in honor of the Lord. So Christians who have the Spirit of Jesus Christ and live by the Spirit, as all true Christians do, Everything in life is to be done to the glory of God, even in their living and their dying. It talks about Jesus being the Lord of the living and those who die. He's just saying there's a Lord of everything. And so all of his people live for his glory. So let me encourage you to cultivate the good that is worth cultivating. If one of your fellow church members then thinks it honors the Lord to abstain from alcohol or to abstain from tattoos or whatever, we should first think, praise God. Praise God, this person is wanting to honor the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you might disagree. You might hold a different opinion, and that's okay. Now, keep in mind here, if you're talking to the weak and you are the strong and you do, in fact, have a a different opinion, that might not be the best time to say, oh, well, you are wrong. Like, you might just need to tell yourself to shut up and encourage the good that is there. You should first think, he is my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ, and our Father in heaven has so freed him from the tyranny of sin, and he is now striving to live for the honor of the Lord. I might not agree with him, but there's no real need to get into a discussion of opinion. But praise God for his work in his life. All right, the third reason for why we are to welcome one another is because God is the judge, and we will all give an account to him. God is the judge, and we will all give an account to him. This is what it says there in verse 12. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, again, for the strong, the fact that God is judge should ideally fill you with joy. Right? It should ideally fill you with joy that your weaker brother strives to stand before the Lord to give an account. He wants to do that because he wants to please God, even in matters indifferent. And so if you find yourself wanting to despise or judge in a certain way or not welcome them or want to pick them apart for various opinions, you should be rebuked here and be reminded that you will give an account to God for your lack of love. God has welcomed him. If you find yourself critical of others trying to love Jesus, even in ways you think are uptight, well, friends, you're right. if you are the strong here, you have something to pray for. Friends, let me encourage you this to do this. Pray that you would love your siblings as God loves them. After all, Christ gave his very own life to secure their salvation. Pray that you would love them in such a way where you are an extension of the Father's love to them. For the weak. So if you know yourself to hold a whole lot of opinions very tightly, and that's the way in which you follow Jesus and the way in which you might think other people should follow Jesus, the fact that God is judge should fill you with joy, knowing that the strong live in this glorious freedom that is in Jesus Christ. That should bring you joy. And where you might judge them, remember that you too will give an account for wanting to restrict their freedom in Christ as no one has the right to strip Christians of their freedom that is genuinely in Jesus Christ. And if you find yourself 
judging others who honor God differently than you do in matters of opinion, you too have something to pray for. Pray that you learn, you learn to love the strong by wanting them to live in the freeness that Christ himself has purchased for them. To conclude, with the aim to love one another, welcoming another as God himself has already welcomed them in Jesus Christ, welcoming them as our spiritual siblings who aim to live for the glory and honor of the Lord, knowing that he is judge, right? That's what gets us to strengthen our bonds of unity, no matter the difficulty of differences, no matter the difficulty of having different opinions. Don't let opinions divide the church. God has taken care of sin. He's taken care of Satan. He's taken care of sin. Certainly, he will take care of differences in opinions. Whether we are Gentiles or Jews, weak or the strong God, if you look there at the end of Romans chapter 16, look there. What is God bringing about by gathering different types of people who hold to different opinions, coming from different backgrounds and different cultures and with different baggage? Well, praise God, he does so in this sinful world, this sinful and broken world. He, what is he doing? He's bringing in, verse 26, the end there, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith among all nations, among all different kinds of people. And we here, even right now, have the privilege of displaying the king's glory as we as his citizens here at First Baptist Church are united in our one king, embracing one another even though we have different opinions. All of this is made possible in our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you give us Jesus Christ, a display of your great love for sinners. You move towards us, even though we had rebelled against you, you move towards us in Jesus Christ as he took on flesh and lived among us. Lord, we pray that the incarnation would be a model for our love for one another, that we would move towards one another in gospel love, seeking to see sin covered over by a, multi, a multitude of sin being covered over by the love of Jesus Christ, seeing opinions and differences being covered over by the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that First Baptist Church would be strengthened in our bonds of love, that we, according to your word, would, would labor for unity in the spirit of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would do this so that we would be more of a faithful display of your glory to the ends of the earth, as the last verse of Romans says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would cultivate our heart, in our hearts more compassion, more mercy, more understanding, and more patience, so that we would seek to love others in the way that you want others loved. Lord, you have welcomed all of us. So, Lord, we pray that we would be a welcoming church. We pray all of these things for the sake of your great name. Amen.